Uh, and a cordial good afternoon to all. Our program today will be focused on the Middle East, most particularly will be focused upon Israel and uh, Israel's problems and opportunities, and it is all guided by or prompted by the very significant opening to Iran that the American government has recently engineered uh, as we examine just what that pact really means in terms of consequences for the world, for the United States, for the prospects for peace or continued international destabilization, and, of course, what it means for the country that feels, quite properly, I would think, most threatened by the new opening to Iran, which gives them a way to go forward to quick nuclearization, uh, and which as well gives them a lot of money, which can be used uh, in many ways, possibly some of them quite nefarious. We're joined by two guests. Uh, one, uh, they've both been here before, uh, the one uh, from Israel, uh, though she's often in this country, Caroline Glick, uh, in fact, a Chicago native by origin, but for many years she has lived in Israel, she served in the Israeli military, and she is one of the leading journalists of the country, uh, has the uh, official title of Deputy Managing <coughs> Editor of the Jerusalem Post, where she writes in English, and of course she writes in Hebrew as well for yet other publications. Our other guest is another old friend, Richard Baer, who is the chief political correspondent for the American Thinker. What is the American Thinker? Um, it is one of the best online magazines that uh, I read regularly. And it is, um, you will confess, or, or you will grudgingly acknowledge, won't you, Richard, it tends on the conservative side. I think that's fair. Um, and I think Carolyn uh, also tends to be conservative, not only with regard to issues of foreign policy, but with regard to Israeli politics uh, as well. I think that that would be a fair fair statement, yes. We want you closer to the microphone. I said I think that that would be quite fair, Milton. It yes. would indeed. What's happening politically, internally, in Israel at the moment? Well, uh, I think uh, much to the relief of the government, uh, the Knesset just went on summer recess, so... Uh, they're all right, and they don't have to face another non no confidence vote for at least another six weeks, um, much like the U.S. Congress. And so that uh, that's fine. Uh, Netanyahu right now has a uh, razor thin uh, majority coalition of 61 seats out of the 120 seat uh, Knesset, but I think that uh, he doesn't face a very unified opposition, and his coalition itself is pretty cohesive. So, despite its razor thin. Uh, majority, I think it's much more stable than previous governments have been. Only a week or more, a little bit more ago, we had the Knesset on this program live because we were talking to the former Israeli ambassador to the United States. Uh, and he was in the Knesset. They were having a session. It was about two or three in the morning by the time mm -hmm. we finished. Sounds like the British Parliament, as a matter of fact. Something like that, only... Uh a little bit more violent. And yes, we heard a lot of shouting. <laughs> yes. And every so often he had to get off the mic to go vote on something or other. Right. Let's come directly to it. The immediate and outstanding issue, of course, and Caroline's been writing a good deal about it, as has Richard, is the, the new pact, shall we call it that, between the United States and uh, the government of Iran. Uh, they don't uh, title it a pact, but it seems to me, some indeed have interpreted it, this way, it's been a kind of an opening towards Iran, the beginning of a new, broad look in American foreign policy, 
uh, sort of changing partners in the Middle East. Does that make any sense to you, Caroline? I think that your description of it is apt. I, I think that, uh, you know, we see, uh, uh, I think it was Abraham Lincoln's electoral slogan in 1860. Five, uh, don't change horses in the middle of the stream. Well, I'm often uh, reminded of that slogan with uh, Obama because the United States is definitely midstream in its struggle against the forces of global jihad, and the United States under the Obama administration seems to have uh, really shifted and and changed, uh, I would say, from a horse to a mule. Um, I'm I'm going to read something to you that you may recognize because they're your words. Okay. But you turn out wonderful articles Thank you. Uh, two or three times a week and column one is it's sometimes called uh, for the Jerusalem Post. And this is one of them. It's dated just uh, last Friday. Um, and this is only the opening paragraph. In testimony last week before the House Committee in Charge of State Department funding, U.S. Ambassador to the U.N., Samantha Power, acknowledged that the Obama administration intends to abandon the U.S.'s 50-year policy of supporting Israel at the United Nations. After going through the tired motions of pledging support for Israel, quote, when it matters, Power refused to rule out the possibility that the U.S. would support anti-Israel resolutions in the U.N. Security Council to limit Israeli sovereignty and control, uh, to limit Israeli sovereignty and control to the lands within the 1949 armistice lines. Lines that are indefensible. That's your judgment, of course. Um, Such a move will be taken, she indicated, in order to midwife the establishment of a terrorist-supporting Palestinian state whose supposedly moderate leadership does not recognize Israel's right to exist, calls daily for its destruction, and uses the UN to delegitimize the Jewish state. In other words, the Obama administration intends to pin Israel into indefensible borders while establishing a state committed to its destruction. You still hold those views? I do, although later? I don't believe that I wrote that last week. I think I wrote it a few weeks ago. At, it's at it's any rate, dated uh, Friday, April 24. Right, so about four <coughs> uh, that, months ago. That's four months ago. Uh, yeah, three months ago. Anyway, um, look, uh, yes, the, unfortunately, the Obama administration has made very clear in recent months, if not, if you don't want to go back already to uh, his first day in office, but certainly uh, with mounting... Uh, with mounting clarity over the past several months, the Obama administration has made clear that it is, in fact, changing sides in the Middle East. Um, it is abandoning its Arab allies. It is abandoning Israel as an ally. And uh, it is um, embracing the forces in the Middle East led by the Ayatollahs in Iran and by the dictator of Turkey, the Islamist dictator of Turkey, Recep Erdogan, that are are standing behind forces from Hezbollah on the uh, on the Iranian side uh, to uh, Al Qaeda and ISIS on the Turkish side and Hamas that are dedicated not only to the annihilation of Israel but to the annihilation of the United States. All of that leads to a very simple and basic question. Also, it reminds me of a parallel a long time ago. I think it was in um, the uh, Nixon administration that. Um, Journalists began talking about a visible tilt away from India towards Pakistan. Kissinger was Secretary of State, and Kissinger acknowledged, yes, we have tilted towards Pakistan, and he had good reasons why, and he explained them. And that was a press uh, focus for a few months, and it passed. This is a tilt toward uh, Iran. It's a tilt also, one must remember, it seems to me, 
toward uh, Shiite Islam and thus away from Sunni Islam. The basic question has to be simply and directly, why in the world, uh, especially if this has been the intention for some time, uh, fostered by Samantha Power as one of his major advisors on foreign policy, why in the world has Obama decided to and been motivated to do this very thing? I think to some extent the president has chosen a path to subcontract the fighting that's going to go on in countries that are now collapsing and self-destructing like Iraq uh, to the Iranians. Uh, the problem is that will likely lead to a, a country that begins to more resemble Syria and Lebanon uh, than the condition that Iraq was in at the time that uh, Obama took office. But the basic payoff for their taking the subcontract is, to be sure, immediately visibly $150 billion. But beyond that is uh, the signal, sure, you can make your, you can make nuclear weapons, just let's hold off a while and play this game with us for general public consumption, but you'll be a nuclear power. Look, I mean, I, I think that, uh, first of all, you have to recognize that the United States is not simply siding with the Shiites against the Sunnis, because there are Sunnis that the United States is also siding with, and they're yes. the most radical Sunnis. They're not the moderate Sunnis like Egyptian President uh, uh, Assisi. Um, they are, again, Turkish <clears throat> dictator and Islamist Recep Erdogan, who just cut a deal with the United States wherein he gives the United States the right to use Turkish air bases to attack ISIS positions in Iraq. But in exchange, the United States has given him a green light to attack its closest allies, its only trustworthy allies in Iraq and in Syria, the Kurds. So... You know, they're, they're, they're betting on the Muslim Brotherhood-aligned movements and regimes uh, throughout the region right now, led most prominently by Erdogan, and they're betting on the Iranians, led by Death to America, calling uh, Ayatollahs, uh, and again, against Israel, against America's Sunni moderate Arab allies or non-jihadist Arab allies, and again— as well, and most importantly, from the American perspective against the United States' own national security interests. Is this possibly an instance of sort of idiosyncratic individuality operative in history, which, if it were not there, would not allow history to take this turn? What I'm referring to is Barack Obama. Does this have anything to do with uh, uh, his history in childhood, uh, where he was raised for a while as a Muslim? Does it have anything to do with the influence upon him? Of people like Rashid Khalidi and uh, the uh, uh, and the fellow that Khalidi replaced Ali at Abu Columbia, uh, Saeed uh, Ali Abu Nima is a local Muslim zealot who hangs around Chicago and writes and uh, vociferates a great deal. Is it possible that without Obama we would not be doing this? Yeah, I, I think there are a few things. Um, one is I think Obama defined himself as not George Bush. Yeah. So if the Bush administration had a policy, then Obama had to have a separate policy. If Bush was for war, Obama would be for diplomacy. If Bush invaded Iraq, sent troops to Afghanistan, he would have to get troops out of those countries. If Bush relied on the military, Obama was going to demilitarize. And the United States military forces, now the armed forces, are as small as they've been and as small as a percentage of the population as in 50 years. So there is a... Consistency. This is not a presidency that is non-ideological. This is not a pragmatic presidency in the way Bill Clinton's was. This is one that came to office with an agenda. And well, I think Carol, Carolyn is right that that agenda has included making nice to groups that historically we had shied away from. Well, what ideology, if, if you mention ideology, what ideology backs up or generates that agenda? 
I mean, I think that it's sort of a boilerplate uh, leftist radical agenda that you see so much of on college campuses in the United States in particular. I don't think, you know, it's sort of this notion that America, everything it stands for, and all of its allies across uh, the span of history are somehow or another morally um, morally handicapped, and that those who have opposed the United States and have opposed America's allies across the span of history are morally superior to the United States and to its traditional allies, whether that ally be Britain, that ally be um, uh, <coughs> Chile, uh, or that ally be South Korea, Japan, or, of course, the United States itself, and, and obviously Israel, um, I think that the, the notion is that there's something basically immoral about the United States and everybody who's ever sided with it. And whether you want, you know, there a lot of people want to put different isms on it. I think that this is basically universityism. It's uh-huh. taking the progressive classroom to uh, the halls of power in Washington and translating it into American foreign policy. The... Uh... The people who knew Obama when he was at the University of Chicago mm-hmm. uh, were basically his colleagues in the law school. But uh, what they really remember is that he was hardly ever there. He was only an adjunct, uh, and uh, he didn't hang around, didn't come to faculty meetings. He was rather mysteriously uh, elusive a while there. Yeah, I actually was on a program uh, that you had back in 2008 uh, with a couple of Obama defenders, including uh, uh, two of them who had taken classes from him in yeah. law school. And um, both of them, though excited about his candidacy, uh, were forced to admit that he was not one of the star professors. And most important, the University of Chicago ethos, which is that everybody has to sort of get up and defend what they believe in in front of other faculty who are ready to tear him apart. Obama never did that. So he did his class time, which was undistinguished, apparently, and then left. I have on my extended website, which is uh, miltrosenberg.com, uh, a uh, uh, a full transcription of an interview that I did or a conversation I did with him uh, in uh, the year, whatever year it was that he began to run for the state senate. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess that's 1996. thereabouts. Uh, and uh, he sounds vaguely leftist in a university sort of way, but pretty vague. And basically, he just wants to help people. And he is helping some people a great deal, I guess. Well, I mean, he's helping terrorists a great deal. He's helping America's enemies a great deal. And it's actually quite disconcerting, the people that he's helping versus the people who he's harming. Um, You both agree, and this is visible in separate pieces that the two of you have written, that um, the pact that was formed and signed uh, is, in fact, uh, a bunch of, impossible promises and is uh, raises suspicions in virtually every paragraph we might i think profit from looking a bit more closely at just what was signed or signed away uh in uh in the making of that agreement what date was it finally confirmed by the two countries it's only about 10 days ago or so it was a tuesday so it's uh, nine days let's look at it more closely after we pause for this We are focused today on the cordial detente between the United States and Iran and its consequences uh, for nuclear policy and nuclear uh, coming nuclear history from here on and its more particular consequences 
for the embattled and threatened state of Israel. My guests are one of the leading journalists of Israel, Caroline Glick, who is the deputy managing editor of the Jerusalem Post. That's the great English-language newspaper from uh, Israel. And Richard Baer, who is the leading political analyst for a fine online magazine, The American Thinker. Um, Let's look at the agreement more closely. What do you see through when you look at it? I think that the big picture of the agreement that's important, and I hope that Richard might go into some of the details, but the big picture that people really have to bear in mind is that this this agreement does two things, two big things. It uh, gives $150 billion to the Iranians essentially as a signing bonus um, with no strings attached. Everybody acknowledges that no strings attached. They're effectively giving them a suitcase full of money of cash money, which they can give to all kinds, which they can give to all kinds of right. terrorist organizations. And, and you have to understand that you know funding Hezbollah and and Hamas with this kind of money, they can do it essentially for as long as they want to whatever level they please, as well as the militias in Iran, in Iraq, and in and in Yemen and elsewhere, South America, whatever they want to do. One hundred and fifty billion dollars is an enormous amount of money. And they've already said they're going to use it to fund terrorism. That's the first thing you have to understand. The other thing that you have and to understand— And they still stand in the streets, including the uh, top man, the Ayatollah Khomeini, mm-hmm. uh, Khomeini, screaming death to America. Exactly. I mean, they're, they're pledged to destroy the United States. They say it over and over and over again. Zarif told the British Foreign Minister Hammond that Iran has no common interests with America and its allies. And he said it, I think, at the signing ceremony of the deal in Vienna. So, I mean, they're, they're not making any— any bones about this. They're absolutely clear. And the second big thing that this agreement does is it guarantees Iran uh, will become a nuclear power, guarantees it. It doesn't, as uh, President Obama and Secretary of State Kerry claim, uh, block Iran's uh, path to uh, to the bomb. It paves their way to a bomb. Well, and they, they can- assert... Uh- that it will put it off for at least 10 years. Right. No, it won't, because it doesn't actually limit their breakout capacity at all. What it does is it gives them a series of um, of uh, of rewards for not going nuclear at any particular time, but it doesn't prevent them from doing so. And I think that that's a key point, is that Iran can vacate its signature with essentially no consequences at any time with five weeks' notice, and so it can pocket the $150 billion, for instance, in December, and then in February it can vacate its uh, its agreement to this to and, this accord, and, you, and then it'll have the $150 billion, and it will still be two months away from a nuclear bomb. Two months away, so that easy to fabricate, that easy to put together, nuclear warheads? Well, we don't even know where they are because uh, the agreement itself didn't require them to expose uh, where what they have. You know, the 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 uh, suspected uh, military dimensions of of the agreement aren't even covered. They don't have to come clean on anything that they've done. So we don't actually even know where they are on the nuclear line. We know from what what we know that they're up to a year away from being able to uh, uh, put to, or from breakout. What's called breakout. Uh, uh, point, which is where they can build uh, bombs at will. And President Obama himself said that at the end of this agreement, they're going to have zero breakout time so that they can be all lovey-dovey with the West. They can get the Americans and the Russians to protect their nuclear installations, as this deal says that they will, uh, from Israeli and other forms of sabotage and attack. 
and get American and other international know-how to develop advanced centrifuges and so on and so forth, buy missiles, ballistic missiles uh, on the open market and, and whatever conventional forces they want to they develop on the open market within just a few years. Um, and all this, you know, with American legitimacy legally on the open market. And then at the end of this agreement, they can blow up a nuclear test device or blow up Tel Aviv, whatever they want, and everything will be legal. And what's required by way of boosting the rocket, uh, or boosting rather the mm-hmm. warhead on a rocket, is not an ICBM. That's a little bit more complicated. But, Which they're developing, by the way. But they are developing that as well. But and it um, doesn't bar them from, from collaborating, for instance, with Pyongyang, with the North Koreans, mm-hmm. on all of the nuclear, on all of the military dimensions of miniaturization of warheads and the like over the course of the next several years. So there's really absolutely nothing in this deal that blocks their path from nuclear weapons. But, but gonna, it provides them with a number of venues for developing them, including the one that I haven't mentioned, which is cheating. But what I was simply going to say is that they've already got the rocket, uh, the rocketry required to throw one at Israel right now, so long as they get the warhead. And you can also buy the warhead from the North Koreans. And they don't actually need to disperse a nuclear device against Israel with a Shehab-3 missile, which is also capable, by the way, of reaching southern Europe. Yeah. They, they have artillery pieces that they can use to disperse nuclear elements from Syria or from Lebanon. They have missiles in Lebanon that are equipped to handle uh, nuclear warheads. So it, it, they don't even need the ballistic missiles that they're developing. Those are all, as Prime Minister Netanyahu has said repeatedly, those are all for the United States of America. Uh, our Secretary of State Kerry denies all of that, says uh, this really holds them to a non-nuclear uh, reality for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And who could really figure anything beyond 10 years, and it's really a very, very good deal for us, because otherwise, if we didn't have this agreement, they would rush forward and develop the weapons much sooner. Is Kerry stupid, or is he self-infatuated, or does he know things that we don't know? Yeah, I, I hope he's on TV in front of Congress at least another couple of weeks, because I think every time he makes a public appearance at this point, it's helping our side. Uh, he really is not a very effective spokesperson. He sounds annoyed. Uh, that he has to deal with Congress. After all, they went to the United Nations. They spent two years negotiating, uh, and then in uh, absolute uh, sort of slap in the face of Congress, decided that they would take it to the United Nations on the following Monday uh, rather than let Congress. And they said, well, what, is the world going to wait for the U.S. Congress as if somehow it's not a co-equal yeah. uh, branch of government? Well, he's also preempting Congress by... Getting U.N. approval first. Yeah, exactly. Puts pressure on now, says, now you can't deny it now because yeah. look what we've already done. But th- there are three things that came out with Kerry in the testimony this week that I think uh, uh, were of interest. One was uh, he obviously ticked Congress off by, by sending it uh, to the United Nations as quickly as it did. But he was asked by Brad Sherman, a congressman in, uh, from California, who I think will be uh, voting against the deal. Uh, and... They, uh, he asked him, he says, let's assume that we reject the bill, the president vetoes it, and we then override. Uh, so sanctions remain in place, he says. Is the president uh, going to respect essentially the law at that point, given his history with other laws that he has not respected over the last few years? And Kerry said, I don't want to answer a hypothetical like that, <laughs> meaning whether the president obeys the law is a question that doesn't deserve an immediate and obvious answer. So that was that was kind of an incredible one. Um, but, but there were others. The uh, uh, had, had, had Senator Cotton from Arkansas not been over in Europe in the last week, 
most members of Congress would have been unaware that there were side deals between Iran and the IAEA that deal essentially with the prior weapons development. Caroline has the American cover story, as given by Kerry and people like that. Has it sold at all in Israel and any sectors of the total political range? No, and I think it's important not only to end it with a no, I think it's important to say just uh, because this, this speaks to the level of, 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 uh, of uh, mendaciousness of the president's supporters <clears throat> in the United States. They've been citing a handful of very far-left retired generals in, in, in Israel who have stated that uh, there are positive aspects of this deal, uh, taking Kerry at his word, saying that it'll block Iran maybe for 10 years. But none of them have said outright that this is a good deal. Moreover, and more to the point, these statements are being used by the uh, pro-Obama group, uh, J Street, that's run by by some some Jewish people. And um, they... That's a Washington-based lobby. It's a Washington-based lobby, and uh, they claim to be a Jewish organization, but really they're just a lobbying organization for for the White House. At any rate, J Street is saying, oh, look, you know, uh, there are many very important Israelis, the Israeli security brass, I think an article in the Jewish Daily Forward said, uh, is supporting this deal. But it's not, and that's un, that's un, that's just an untrue statement. The overwhelming majority of Israeli security officials, both retired and presently serving, oppose this deal entirely. And uh, moreover, the people who they're citing, some many of whom, many of them say that we don't support the deal, and the two or three that do support the deal do not call for Jewish organizations in this country to be lobbying Congress on behalf of the deal. You have critics of Netanyahu who are saying in Israel, perhaps Israel should not be lobbying in opposition of this deal, but no one is saying that anyone in the United States, or let alone in Israel, should be lobbying Congress on behalf of this deal. And I think that that's very important. There's very rarely unanimity in Israel about anything. But the truth is that across the board and across the years, there has been unanimity against uh, against Iran's uh, nuclear weapons program in Israel. There is no Israeli constituency, either among the the general public or or the retur- or the security community in Israel, that in any way supports, understands, is willing to live with an Iranian nuclear bomb. That brings you directly to the question of greatest concern, I should think, in the Knesset and in the foreign ministry and in the office. Um, of uh, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. What do we do now? You know, Israel is, the truth of the matter is that Israel is where it has been for some time. I mean, certainly since two years ago when Obama uh, blinked on the eve of what was supposed to be an American military assault on Bashar Assad's regime targets after he was proven to have used uh, uh, chemical weapons against regime That's when he laid down the red line. Right. Obama said that that was a red line, that if Bashar Assad was caught doing that, not only did he do it, but he did it against civilians. So Obama... And we we did nothing. And then Obama blinked and walked away. So Obama essentially lost all credibility in uh, in uh, dealing with uh, threats emanating from Iran and its proxies in in August of 2013, um, and I think that unfortunately Israel is where it has it is in the same place it's been since 2013. Although now we face a much more formidable uh, threat from the American government because uh, Kerry has said, I mean, he is really channeling the worst anti-Semitic. Um, uh, uh, 
uh, cliches and undertones in his rhetoric before Congress when he says that Israel will be to blame if the U.S. Congress opposes this deal as if Tom Cotton and, you know, all of the other senators and, and congressmen that have been elected by the American people to serve them uh, are incapable of thinking for themselves and are somehow or another controlled by, by a Jewish conspiracy uh, operated out of Jerusalem when they cast their votes in the Congress. And so he's been using these anti-Semitic conspiracy uh, dog whistles, as, as they're now called, uh, to uh, whip up anti-Jewish sentiment in this country. Uh, he's threatening the American Jewish community not to uh, use this deal. I think that the fact that the administration tried to take uh, credit for the parole uh, board in North Carolina's decision to p- parole a convicted Israeli agent, uh, Jonathan Pollard, after he served 30 years of a life sentence uh, for transferring classified materials to Israel. is another clear indication that the administration wants to castigate American Jewry as somehow or another treacherous and not to be trusted. So, you know, all of these things now have to play into uh, Israeli calculations, but the bat, but at the end of the day, we are where we have been for many years, which is that the only thing that will prevent Iran from acquiring nuclear weapons, from becoming a nuclear power, from asserting hegemonic power over the Middle East as a nuclear-armed terrorist-supporting state with expansionist uh, uh, designs, is an Israeli uh, a military strike against a sufficient number of Iran's nuclear installations to get us past the Obama presidency. Uh, and I know that you've come essentially to that conclusion in a number of your recent articles. Mm-hmm. But in, in what you just said, it's clear that you would not uh, argue that they can wipe out the total nuclear capability. Nor do of I Iran. believe that. Nor do I believe that Israel has to do so. Again, I mean, I think that the goal right now is to um, is to withstand the Obama presidency, um, and after that. We'll see who's in the overall office. We'll see who's elected in November 2016 and uh, and determine uh, our next moves accordingly. Richard Baer. Yeah, well, one of the interesting things, just a, a follow-up, is not only to blame Israel, but there have been a couple of insidious columns this week suggesting uh, that the real fallout from the opposition by Israel to this deal will be a split in black-Jewish relations that could last decades Um there was a column by Colbert King, um, which basically was arguing that um, any opposition to Obama on this deal is inherently racist, uh, which is kind of something that's been argued about opposition to Obama broadly. That's uh, worked for the last yeah. it's worked for the last six August and six. a half years. But it has particular influence among Jewish Americans, given yeah. their history with the African-American community and the civil rights movement. And what you have is... If the Jewish community is unwilling to lead in opposition to this deal because they're gun-shy, because they're afraid of that kind of fallout, then it's going to make it easier for other opponents, uh, other supporters of the deal to climb on board and say, it's okay, look, we got it's not only just J Street, but we now have Sander Levin of Michigan supporting it, and we'll get some other Jewish Americans who are in Congress or the Senate start peeling off that they'll announce them one by one, there'll be a major news story. And how bad can the deal be if these people who are identified as pro-Israel are supporting the deal? So this is a strategy that essentially, by keeping the black support very tight, you try to force the Jewish community, essentially, at least in some numbers, to get on board. You look at the federations. There's like half a dozen federations who have now opposed the deal, but there's over 100 federations in America. They're gun-shy. 
um, and this is a sort of a Jewish American community in general, uh, the leadership is not there. I mean, you look back at what happened during the period before the Holocaust when the Jewish community was clearly not as well organized, not as influential, didn't have people in Congress. Now we do, and we're behaving in large part the same way. An important Jewish American political figure is caught right in the middle of this and must face a sense of uh, quiet desperation over the paradox and over uh, the unavailability of um, a totally workable position for himself. I have in mind, of course, Senator Schumer of New York, who is up for re-election, I believe. Yeah, I, I don't think Schumer's got to worry about re-election in New York. I mean, even oh. if the Jews abandon him, he still has Wall Street. <laughs> but the, uh, uh, and New York is such a liberal state. Um, the issue for Schumer is less uh, his electoral prospects than whether he'll become minority or majority leader of the Senate with Harry uh -huh. Reid retiring. Yeah. Schumer was assumed to be in line, but if he takes a, if he poses the bill, if he poses the deal, and lobbies hard against it, and gets enough senators, maybe thirteen, to join the Republicans to support, so you get an override with two thirds, he'll get blamed. If he gets blamed, will the core supporters of Obama in the Senate support him in two thousand seventeen when he runs for majority leader, or will you have an opponent suddenly surface who's further to the left? And more reliable. So Schumer, this is his career. He's not going to be president. His the highest pe pedestal he can get is Senate Majority Leader if the Democrats take control, or Minority Leader if they don't. And so that I think, given his history, is something he's wrestling with. Is it worth remembering, or is it merely an oddity that ought to be ignored because it has no direct relevance that our present Secretary of State is quote half Jewish? His father was Jewish. I don't, I don't, I don't think that it's worth uh, discussing. I mean, uh, John Kerry made his bed and he sleeps in it. I mean, he is a man who uh, claims, you know, proclaims his pride in having served the U.S. in the I I the United States of America in the military after graduating from Yale when he joined the Navy. But the fact of the matter is that he ended his military career by spitting in the faces of his fellow soldiers and officers by going to. Uh, Paris and uh, negotiating a uh, faux deal, a propaganda deal against the U.S. military and the fighting men in Vietnam uh, uh, together with the North Vietnamese communists. And so, you know, this is who the man is. The measure of the man has to be, in this case, you know, uh, taken by his actions and his actions have across, again, the full, the full span of his long career been radical, been opposed to America, been opposed to the U.S. military, and um, I don't think that it has anything to do whatsoever with the fact that uh, he has Jewish ancestry. He was not, uh, he does not identify as a member of the community, and the community should in no way recognize him as a member. Speaking of actions, I am guilty of uh, a terrible action. I'm 10 minutes late for some commercials. Here they are. The received wisdom about the continued trouble in the Middle East between Israel and its Palestinian neighbors and various other states, which are at times quite hostile towards it. The received wisdom for decades has been it can all be solved only one way, and that is to fully establish uh, a legitimate uh, and empowered Palestinian state neighboring the Israeli state, and that will be the beginning of the true peace process. And that's what our life uh, has to be about uh, as we, uh, through our foreign policies, whether in this country or England or France or wherever, maybe even in Moscow, as our foreign policies develop 
positions regarding Israel and Palestine. Uh, but there are others who deeply disagree. And one of them is Carolyn Glick, who did a book uh, published last year, I mm-hmm. guess, titled The Israeli Solution. And it is uh, stunning in its argument and in its conclusions. And of course, I invite you to lay out the thesis. I think that, you know, it's it's also relevant here because a lot of people are wondering, okay, well, now that Obama has given the bomb to Iran, what's what's next on his agenda? Where's his next uh, where's his next big thing? And, you know, many people are, are, are thinking that he's going to go back to Israel and put the squeeze on Israel to make more concessions to the Palestinians uh, in land. Um, the Americans, you know, put out a uh, statement, the State Department put out a statement, I think just yesterday, expressing their deep dis- their deep concern over Israel's plan to build homes for Jews beyond the 1949 armistice land uh, lines in in Jerusalem and and in Beit El um that you know biblical cradle of of Jewish civilization um and you know, they they make this statement but they never express deep concern over the fact that Iran's uh terrorist proxies are are murdering Sunnis in in Iraq by the hundreds they they only, you know, if Jews build build homes for Jews in Israel, then that is in Jerusalem of all places, then that's a cause for deep concern by on the part of the administration. And you quoted an article that I wrote some months ago in which uh, Samantha Power, the UN ambassador, indicated that the United States was planning on turning on Israel at the UN, which since 1975 really has been a, a an insane asylum for the world's worst anti-Semites and anything that you want to accuse Israel of, including, you know, global warming, including uh, uh, infant mortality in in, uh, sub-Saharan Africa, will pass with a a 5-6 majority in the the General Assembly. So they're now planning on using that august uh, insane asylum to attack Israel and to try to force Israel to make concessions in land that Israel requires for its national defense. Now, the, the basic rationale of this whole idea that Israel has to be squeezed sufficiently in order to bring peace upon uh, the Middle East um, never made sense. But certainly now, with regimes collapsing and being stressed throughout the Arab world, it makes even it, it, it's impossible to even argue with a straight face. The notion that the establishment of a Palestinian state uh, on the west bank of the Jordan River of Israel and and so forcing Israel, the United States' only stable remaining ally in the region, the only stable uh, uh, liberal democracy in the Middle East that has survived the ravages of the so-called Arab Spring is just laughable. I mean, we have the Saudis and we have the Egyptians and the Jordanians and, and the UAE and other Arab nations that are clinging to Israel for dear life as a life, as a life, as a life raft, uh, trying to, uh, make sure that they're able to, to, uh, weather the current storm. And here are the Americans coming in and saying, well, what we really think that Israel needs to do is become a strategic basket case. It has to give up all of the lands that it requires both to have any sort of internal rationale to exist, uh, meaning Jerusalem, and it also has to give up its ancestral lands that it needs not only for that same rationale, but also in order to defend itself from the forces of uh, global jihad that are now ravaging surrounding states from Syria and and, and Jordan and Lebanon, particularly, and, and Egypt. I like a line that Netanyahu got off some while ago when he says, um, uh, we come from Judea. Right. That's why we We're call Jews. ourselves Jews. Right. 
Right. Look, I mean, Judea is part of the West Bank. Right. I mean, look, the whole the whole thing with the calling these areas the West Bank when 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 historically throughout the years until really 19 uh, uh, in the 1950s were referred to as Samaria and Judea um, is to try to erase the Jewish history of the land of Israel. Similarly, you know, back uh, at the time of the destruction of the Second Temple in, in 70 of the Common Era, the Romans, after they destroyed the Jewish homeland, in the land of Israel, and actually it took them another 60 years of, of guerrilla warfare against the Jews to finally wipe it out in, in 134 uh, of the Common Era. The Romans said, um, we're not going to call it Judea anymore. We're going to blot it out. We're going to call it Palestine after the Philistines, who it disappeared from the annals of history 700 years earlier. But let us come to what you advocate in the book that was published last year. What you do advocate, I can say in a quick summary, but mm-hmm. then I want you to lay out uh, yeah. the nature of the argument, is that a two-state solution is not workable. The only solution that is workable is a one-state solution, uh, and all of historic Palestine, if you want to call it that, should be essentially the state of Israel. Right. I mean, what, what uh, we hear on the Israeli left and what we hear from the Americans and from, from the Europeans is that Israel cannot possibly expand its democratic rule, its uh, democratic form of government to the Palestinian majority areas in in Judea and Samaria, because if it does, it will be overwhelmed. Uh, It will lose its Jewish majority, and therefore it will cease to be a Jewish state. And as a result, it's out of an abundance of concern for the welfare of the Jewish state of Israel that we insist that Israel give up Jerusalem. That is a way of putting off the demographic threats. Right, that's what they say, that they really, the biggest threat that Israel faces is is the Palestinian womb. But that isn't true, because currently Israel has a two-thirds majority of Jews to Arabs uh, west of the Jordan River, uh, not including Gaza, which Israel left. It has a three-fifths majority with Gaza. And it, Jewish women actually have higher fertility rates than, than Arab women, both in Israel and in the Palestinian areas. And there's also very large and expanding immigration of Jews coming into Israel on, a, on an annual basis. This year, 20,000 French Jews are coming to Israel as, as new immigrants. So, you know, in, in addition to several thousand American and Canadian Jews so and, and, and Jews from the former Soviet Union. So I think that the whole notion that Israel is facing a demographic threat is a lie. It's always been a lie. And it's and it's just another means to try to tell Israel, OK, it's true. The Palestinians don't accept Israel's right to exist. Nobody does. Not the so, so-called moderate Palestinian leadership in the PLO, not the uh, jihadist Palestinian leadership in Hamas and in Islamic Jihad. But you should still give up these lands that you need in order to survive, because if you don't, you're going to be overwhelmed. But how, but how do you get a one state solution acceptable to the Palestinians, and ultimately, what will it do to transform the very nature of Israeli life? You're going to be adding uh, at least two million. No, one and a half million. One and a half million. One point uh, six million Muslims mm-hmm. uh, to the Israeli population if you build the single state. But the thing is, the people don't understand is that we're already dealing with them on a daily basis. We've always been dealing with them since 1967. It's just that now, what we have is a hostile governing authority, the PLO that is inciting all of the people of, the, of, of Judea and Samaria, all, all the people of the West Bank of the Jordan River, to hate Jews, to seek Israel's destruction, and to seek the massacre of Jews. I mean, this is the propaganda that they're getting from the minute that they're born till the minute that they die. And um, and so what I'm talking about is removing this, this, this uh, 
uh, hostile, uh, genocidal, really, actor from the region and just saying, okay, listen, this is a law. It's a liberal, liberal coal, a liberal legal code that governs our state. It will govern you. If you abide by the law, then you can't have all of the opportunities of free men and women to live as you please, including if you want, you can apply for Israeli citizenship. And if you abide by the criteria of Israel's citizenship law, you can receive Israeli citizenship and vote in the Knesset elections. I think that that's a much better option than maintaining this hostile governing authority that uses all the power at its disposal uh, to delegitimize Israel internationally, particularly in the West, in the UN, in the U- in the US, at the, at the in the U- EU, and also is training its people to uh, commit terrorist actions and campaigns. Now, to your, massacre bo- your book Israelis. was published about a year ago. Mm-hmm. There must have been significant Palestinian reaction. What has it been? Well, actually, the Palestinian reactions that I've heard from my book have been extremely positive. Um, from, Pal- what, from what from sources? From Palestinians uh, who live uh, in uh, in the territories. I've gotten, you know, uh, dozens and dozens of emails from Palestinians who live in Hebron, of course, who live in Jerusalem, and also who live in Nablus, who have turned to me and said that they would like to explore this idea. They hate the Palestinian Authority. They wish that they could become part of Israel, and they don't want to be abandoned by Israel. So, you know, I've been very heartened by the response, and I'll just give you one last uh, little story to to sort of emphasize how disgusted so many Palestinians are and Arabs in general are by the jihadist character of their and the corrupt character of their regime. Um, you know, just the other day on Memory uh, TV, the uh, translations uh, research uh, uh, organization that translates uh, Arab media, uh, they posted a video clip of a summer camp, Al-Aqsa summer camp on the Temple Mount, where you had a preacher speaking to children four and five years old and six and seven, from four to eight, more or less, they looked like, telling them that they should seek martyrdom, that if they kill the Jews in jihad, they will get automatic entrance into heaven and they can vouch for 70 of their relatives. They get two virgin wives. He's telling this to five-year-old boys as if they understand what he's talking about. And so he's preaching it. And a passerby came to this preacher. He said, would you leave our children alone? They don't know what you're talking about. They're just kids. You're just infecting them with poison. Talk to us as much as you want. Just leave our kids out of this. And I was really, you know, amazed by by this uh, scene of daily life. It was caught by somebody on their cell phone camera, I think. And they just brought it to the world. And it showed, I think, the level of revulsion that so many of the Arabs feel towards this indoctrination to jihad, that it's carried out as a form of child abuse. Uh, by Palestinian Authority officials and and teachers and 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 preachers. Richard Baer, we've got about two minutes before we have to stop. Yeah, but let's see where I, I think the incredible thing, though, is that uh, both in the United States uh, and in Western Europe, in particular, and uh, and obviously the international community and NGOs, uh, they continue to remain invested in the two-state solution, and actually believe that the Palestinians would accept Gaza, Judea, and Samaria with some sort of land bridge and no right of return. And some splitting Jerusalem. Or they and don't, and they yeah, pretend they do. Yeah, and right. that would be acceptable. And so really, all Israel has to do is go that extra 3 or 5% from what they did at Taba, or what Olmert offered, or what was offered by Barak at, uh, in Camp David, and the deal would be there. The Palestinians would grab it if only Israel made that extra step. And that's, it's absurd. It's, it's about as absurd as believing that Iran won't cheat. So, But... You still have a body of uh, Palestinian public opinion 
which runs against uh, being incorporated into what is a Jewish state and which often settles for the counter uh, maxim and the counter intention, we need to destroy Israel. Most of the great figures in PLO politics over its long run, from Arafat down to the current bunch, have said in Arabic uh, quite often and have put it into the curricula of their public schools and so on. Our ultimate purpose is to destroy or to disestablish the state of Israel. Which is exactly why the concept that they would accept this segment of historic Palestine and say, good, that's an acceptable deal, is is absurd. Yeah. Um, I'm quite excited by the prospect and by the idea. When uh, Caroline shared it with us on in an earlier program before the book was published, and then I looked eagerly for the book, and I find it a very persuasive document. Thank you. Who are the American publishers? Uh, it's Crown, uh, the Crown Publishers. Yeah. Uh, it's the Israeli solution, a one-state plan for peace in the Middle East. And we pause for a, a few minutes right now. And we return to our two guests for the day, Richard Baer and Caroline Glick. Um, Caroline, you are, of course, a native Chicagoan, but you made Aliyah, as they say, that is, uh, moved to Israel. How many years ago now? Oh, uh, 24. 24 years. 24 years, yeah. And for quite a long time, you've been uh, one of the uh, key people running the, and right, of course, writing for the Jerusalem Post. Uh, you write there in English, uh, what's the Hebrew language publication that you're associated with? I'm a senior columnist from Ariv uh, yeah. Daily. Ariv, mm-hmm. yeah. And uh, you've got other connections uh, with an important think tank in Washington, is that right? Yeah, I work with, uh, actually it's the David Horowitz Freedom Center in Los Angeles, and I'm also affiliated with the Center for Security Policy in Washington. That was the one I had in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, security policy is the central issue. It has been all these all these years. What's your own evaluation, as you've given it publicly in the past? I won't ask for any secret thoughts of the uh, leadership of Israel right now. That is to say, uh, Benjamin or Benjamin Netanyahu and uh, the group around him. How how well fueled are they, or how well prompted are they for the tasks that face them? I think that Israel right now has very strong. Uh, 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 political and 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 uh, strategic leadership. I think um, that one of the things that was very eye opening for a lot of the uh, senior uh, security officials in Israel was uh, the Obama administration's treatment of Israel or mistreatment of Israel, I should say, uh, in last summer's war against uh, Hamas in Gaza, where you had you know this Iranian uh, uh, Iranian armed. Uh, a terrorist organization that was shooting thousands of missiles into Israeli civilian uh, centers as far away as Tel Aviv and and Jerusalem. And the Obama administration was siding effectively uh, with Hamas against Israel. The FAA 
actually operated against the Canadians and the Europeans and shut down uh, all incoming traffic to Ben-Gurion Airport in the middle of the war, something that they didn't even do against Ukraine uh, when you had civilian flights that had, had actually been shot down in Ukraine. And, and so they, they, it was an act of economic warfare against Israel. They were trying to force Israel to accept Hamas's ceasefire terms throughout the agreement. They had a partial arms embargo against Israel uh, during the war. And and I think that all of this uh, action, all of these, these uh, steps that the Obama administration took to try to uh, foil Israel's war effort and, and to really uh, side uh, to the best of its ability, despite American support for Israel, with Hamas against Israel in time of war, was really a shock uh, for the general staff of the IDF and for the field grade commanders in the IDF that had always believed <clears throat> the line that they had been told by their American counterparts and uh, and by the media in Israel and, and had believed all, all throughout their lives that America could uh, was Israel's trusted ally. And so I think that Obama really sort of stepped out of stepped out from behind the curtain uh, last summer and uh, that has had a dramatic impact on uh, Israel's strategic leadership ever since. In public opinion measurement, Obama used to rank very, very high around the world, certainly in this country and around the world. He's sunk to some degree, but still essential approval uh, ratings run around 50%. Uh, and uh, for, in this country, for President Obama, what is his uh, rating and standing in Israeli public opinion? I mean, I think Richard is more of uh, the numbers person than I am, but uh, Obama has never pulled above 25 uh, percent approval rating among Israeli Jews uh, from the time that he was running for office until today. Um, so I think you know he doesn't, he didn't ever have a he had he went up, he peaked, I think. Uh, in 2013, in March, when he came to Israel mm -hmm. and he visited, and I think that at that point he may have had a majority uh, approval rating in Israel, but uh, I think it was more closer to around 45 percent. So Israelis have always been suspicious of him, and now you have the overwhelming majority of Israelis, including Israeli Arabs, who are always pointed to as somehow or another oddballs in, in, in all of this, uh, who oppose his deal with Iran and consider it dangerous. Um, in this country... The uh, Jewish vote, essentially, with regard to uh, the presidency and broadly with regard to party preference is decidedly and remains decidedly on the Democratic side. Yeah, I think there's been some shift here as well. Um, at the beginning of Obama's term, his approval ratings were sky high. They were yeah. about 60 percent or, or higher even. The Jewish number was always 15, 20 points beyond that. Mm -hmm. um, if you look at the polling now, for instance, on the Iran deal, uh, when they're conducted fairly, which means someone doesn't bias the question by trying to sell the deal during the questioning. Uh, Jewish Americans are not that far off at this point from the national uh, surveys that have been conducted. And in fact, uh, since the deal's been signed and the congressional testimony has been out there and some of the critical articles have appeared, uh, the deal is less supported now than it was two or three weeks ago, and that's among American Jews as well as the population that's larger. Um, at this point, I think the future of the American Jewish community politically uh, is somewhat different. The fastest growing segment of the community is Orthodox. They have large numbers of children. They don't intermarry, and they tend to vote Republican. 
uh, conservative, reform, and unaffiliated Jews are liberal. They're probably 70 to 80 percent liberal. Their children may be even a higher percentage. But the question is whether in 50, 25 years from now, even calling them Jews makes sense. Uh, I mean, what, what makes them Jewish other than the fact that they claim they support tikkun olam and, and social justice? There's no commitment to Jewish living or Israel. And then there's the fabled reform rabbi, uh, whose large congregation of qu- quite uh, well-educated and liberal people uh, are also rather interested in attending Quaker meetings uh, because they find uh, endorsement of peace and goodwill and, and uh, even some aesthetic pleasure in the Quaker meeting. And that rabbi brags to, uh, to uh, at times, some of my best Jews are friends. Yeah, Brent Rosen. Yeah, the, he got a new job now. He's had, they got a new congregation uh, in the city. So he's half with the American Friends, a little bit with Jewish Voices for Peace. And yeah. now he's got a congregation which uh, uh, has its guiding principles, including the, uh, uh, the destruction of the Palestinian community caused by uh, Jews taking land away from uh, the indigenous people. The one thing I cannot... Oi. <laughs> but the one thing in your analysis uh, and in your advocacy of a single state solution that uh, bothers me most or the greatest obstacle I see <clears throat> is indeed Palestinian public opinion. I grant that there are lots of uh, Jews resident in mm-hmm. historic Israel uh, and mem- uh, who are represented in the Knesset, as we know, and who are and even serve in the armed forces. The Druze, who are an offshoot of Shia Islam are extremely loyal to the uh, Israeli state. But how do you get those surrounding million and a half who then get incorporated into a larger state that's surrounding million and a half uh, of Palestinians? How do you get them really to settle for this? Well, I mean, I I think here, you know, just to go back to that um, picture of the uh, Arab Jerusalemite who was yelling at the yeah. uh, preacher who was trying to Very uh, indoctrinate the children uh, to seek uh, martyrdom, to seek jihad mm-hmm. as a way of life. I mean, I, I think that when you look at Palestinian opinion data, most of it is canned, most of it is push polls, most of it is done by polling agencies that are, are, are acting at the direction of the Palestinian Authority or the Europeans and to come up with certain things. But, you know, when you, when you look at them, you see that they're, if, if they're not forced to live underneath a jackboat of the PLO, then they would be happy not to. And I'm not talking about um, transforming them overnight. I think judicious use of the tools of law enforcement uh, to ensure uh, that Israeli laws are abided by by everyone uh, without, uh, you know, without prejudice, without any discrimination in Israel. And you get to a point where you're protecting people who want to o- obey the law, who want to be law-abiding uh, people against the people who break the law. Because what we have today is uh, out of a desire to appease particularly the Europeans, but also the United States State Department uh, that is constantly breathing down Israel's back. Uh, you see that the law is not equally enforced against Israeli Jews and Israeli Arabs. And um, as a consequence, the first victims of that inequality of law enforcement are not actually the Jews, although it would seem strange to say so. The people who are most directly and deleteriously impacted by that prejudicial means of law enforcement that Israel enacts in order to appease, again, the Europeans and the Americans 
are the Israeli Arabs who abide by the law because then they end up being governed by lawbreakers, by mob rule, because those are the people who are rewarded by this absence of, of, a, of a judicious and a, and a non-discriminatory rule of law in Israel. And so I think that a combination of, of equitable and equal and non, non-discriminatory law enforcement, both in Israel towards Israel's Arab citizens and also in Judea and Samaria, once they are incorporated into, in, uh, into Israel as, uh, and ruled and governed by Israeli law, will, will uh, make it possible for a new generation of Arab leaders both in bo- on both sides of the line to, to uh, be formed. I, I, we saw it in the past. And I think that there's no reason to think that we won't see it in the future. And in that, I just want to add one last thing. You see it happening actually already today. You see increasing numbers of Christian Arabs as well as Muslim Arabs who are embracing Israel to, to as strongly as they possibly can because they see the collapse of all the neighboring regimes. They see what's happening in Lebanon and in Syria and in Jordan and, and in Egypt. And they're suddenly recognizing that being an Israeli citizen is the greatest and most important identity that they hold. It's the one thing that's going to keep them safe and it's going to protect their lives. There are journalists now who are suggesting that a new alliance, in fact, has emerged, though it hasn't been uh, confirmed by any uh, public ceremony or public uh, recognition. And that is an alliance favoring Israel, or at least working with Israel, from Saudi Arabia, from Egypt, Oh, certainly from Jordan, that's been the case for some time, and some of the Gulf no, states. No, actually, today at the Council on Foreign Relations, Dory Gold, the Director General of the Israeli Foreign Ministry, referred to those those specific Arab states as Israel's Arab allies. Yes, that's what I'm talking about. I didn't know that he had done he that did this very that. day. Yes, he did. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and there is are, that an alliance that will last? Yeah, I mean, it's, I, it's based on fear of Iran. Is it? Yeah, I think that that's the prime motivation. And uh, it's not like the behavior by those countries in the United Nations or in how they operate with um, non-governmental organizations is going to change. They still have for public consumption at home, remain as hostile to the Jewish state as they've ever been. Uh, But in terms of their behavior, their lack of faith in the United States essentially providing any kind of leadership anymore to work with them, protect them, supply them, uh, consider Iran the way they do, uh, that has changed. Meanwhile, raging around uh, Israel, that is not within its borders except for terrorist uh, incursions, is uh, the madness of extremist jihadism uh, pushed by uh, uh, Sunni extremists um, and now represented in the so-called Islamic State. Uh, And uh, that is another realm of threat, I should think, for Israel itself. It must be worried about it. They must be made, uh, quite apart from uh, plans about hedging in or otherwise limiting uh, is, uh, uh, Iranian intentions and Iranian power, what are they planning or thinking of doing about uh, jihadism as such and about the Islamic State? Well, I, I think here a couple of things. One, regarding the nature of the alliance that's been formed between Israel and, and its Arab, its Arab uh, neighbors who are equally spurned by the United States. Um, I think that you have to recognize that the strongest alliances are generally those alliances that are built on common interests. And yeah. so I think that the alliance that now we see really coming uh, into full bloom between Israel and the Arabs, the Sunni Arab states, 
is very strong and it will remain strong unless and until those interests change. So I think that on that, you know, you can take it to the bank. You can take it to the bank until currencies start to move. But I mean, that that's basically a, a very key point. Um, and, and regarding what sort of uh, threat Israel faces from ISIS and, and these other groups, I you know, I think Israelis sort of smirk at these questions because all of them, you know, whether it's Hezbollah or ISIS or any of these other organizations, Hamas and, 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 and the PLO itself, they all say that they want to annihilate Israel. I mean, you know, they all compete with one another to see how many, how many Jews they can kill and who can kill the most Jews. So from the Israeli perspective, they're all bad. You know, from from the Sunni Muslim perspective, that's not the case. You know, ISIS makes is a much greater threat to them than than Bashar Assad was, and you know they're concerned about that. Or the Yazidis, of course, or the Middle Eastern Christians, they're the ones who are being targeted mostly. But really, you know, Saddam Hussein massacred Jews, and he was terrible to the Jewish community. More or less, although you have to admit in his favor that Jews did survive under his rule in abject poverty and misery, but he didn't massacre uh, them the way that, that ISIS, no doubt, would if they could get their hand on Jews. So, yeah, again, I, I mean, there's there are different grades of misery and, and of uh, the desire to annihilate, and ISIS is certainly amongst the many who want to, has added its name to, to the, the long list of... Uh, characters in the Islamic world who want to annihilate Israel. I think one of the things that's worth noting is this president came in uh, to office believing that because of his background and because of his attitude, um, that there would be significant change and improvement uh, in the Middle East and in terms of how those countries dealt with the United States. Um, And it would be hard not to conclude that this has been an abject failure in pretty much every country you can name. The United States is less respected. Uh, the most violent jihadist tendencies uh, seem to be sprouting in one of his speeches. As one of his speeches in Kenya last week, he was still recalling uh, and uh, demonstrating his great involvement uh, in Islam, and uh, in essence, reassuring them that he was raised as a Muslim child. Which is funny because in Kenya, which is a Christian majority country, they have a serious, serious problem with Islamic terrorism. And so I'm not sure that it's going to be so comforting to the Kenyan majority that is Christian, that is being massacred by their jihadist Muslim minority, that the American president is speaking nostalgically about his Islamic roots in Kenya. So, I mean, there's also a basic insensitivity that's sort of jarring in in these kinds of statements. You would both agree, wouldn't you, that a real giveaway, if one fully understood its source and its uh, deeper meaning, when he enunciated his Cairo speech, uh, that the giveaway was there if you only knew how to read it. All that we're now talking about can be extracted from what he was really saying to the Arab world or to the Muslim world in a speech just a few months after he took the presidency. Yeah, I mean, his first call in the White House was to Mahmoud Abbas, the very first call, yeah. not even to the leader of a country or an ally. Um, but I think the uh, uh, what went on in Kenya, remember that in 1998, there were attacks on our embassies in Kenya and Tanzania that killed 300 people, including a couple dozen Americans. And who, who undertook those attacks? Yeah. 
Yeah, that's an excellent point. I mean, again, you know, these are countries that are suffering from jihadism in a profound way. I mean, Kenya borders Somalia and Ethiopia, and all of these countries are under mass assault by jihadists. And here is is the American president coming in and effectively telling them, um, yeah, you know, I'm with the other guy. It's really sort of shocking and amazing and uh, and it's not 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 that uh, surprising really that that you know in on many ways his his trip to africa was a disaster for the united states um the pacification of the middle east is the intention or the aspiration of uh, american politicians european politicians all sorts of high political figures it rather reminds you of uh the famous encounter of the uh, guy driving in the backwoods of maine and he gets lost, and he stops and talks to a farmer who's sitting on his porch, whittling or something, and says, I, I, I'm, I'm going to Boston. And the famous response was, you can't get there from here. Can, with regard to Middle East peace, can you get there from here? I, I don't think so, and I, I don't... Ever? Yeah. Um, that's sort of a tough one to answer, uh, but certainly we are further from it now uh, than we were five or six years mm-hmm. ago. And, and I would argue that we put in place policies that have exacerbated all of the worst influences in the region, both Sunni okay. and Shia. Caroline, take a perspective of the next 50 or, or 70 years. How do we get there from here? Middle East peace, a pacified Middle Eastern area, I think, profiting and, and prospering. I think that the first step that one has to take in order to uh, reach a peaceful Middle East is to stop talking about peace in the Middle East. Because I think that the notion that there's some sort of a silver bullet that you can adopt as a foreign policy in order to make all of the problems of the Middle East go away has led the world, and particularly the Middle East, to disaster time after time because um, it doesn't look at things as they are. It will not face it, it by saying that you're what you're doing is you're saying, I don't have to deal with the pathologies of the Islamic world. I don't have to contend with the pathologies of Arab politics. I don't have to think about any of these things at all. I can look at the Middle East as a simple checkers game, and you move this piece here, and you move this piece there, and suddenly everything's going and and everything's going to work. And it doesn't work that way, not in our lives, and not in foreign policy, and certainly not in one of the most complicated areas in the world. So I think that the first measure that you have to do is to just stop talking about peace, and start talking about stabilization, start talking about a very simple rule of thumb, which is, we want to empower forces that aren't massacring people. How do we do that? How do we empower people who aren't victimizing women and 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 uh, and uh, and committing genocides? And as a first approximation, you could go on and say, how do we support people who aren't sponsoring this kind of behavior on the ha- on the part of others? As a second approximation, and that'll get you to a point where you stop doing damage. Because over the decades that the United States has placed this notion of peace at the center of its Middle East policy, it has lost every single military uh, uh, encounter that it has undertaken, more or less, and it has harmed its allies, it has harmed its national security, and it has harmed the region and the cause of international peace. Excellently said. Here, here, in fact. Thank you. Uh, a um, quick um, 
invitation to all listening. If you want to join uh, our conversation to pose a question or offer a thought, now is the time to act. If you want to reach us via telephone, the number, as ever, 847-475-1590, 847-475-1590. If you want to reach us via email, which uh, tends to be a preference, uh, and we are happy to have either kind of communication, but for email, the address is milt, M-I-L-T, at 1590wcgo.com. Milt, at 1590wcgo.com. Get your uh, messages in quickly, if you would, and we will be uh, directly back to you after this. And a direct return to Richard Barron to Caroline Glick. Um, Caroline, who's important in Israeli politics apart from Netanyahu? Uh, let's talk about political personalities. Uh, presently in the ascendant or uh, in the wings coming on. And what they represent, of course. I think that you see in Israeli politics, actually, that there's a, a new generation of politicians that are in their 40s that are really coming of uh, age. Um, this is a, a generation of, of Israelis who uh, came of age, actually, with the uh, Palestinian terrorism and with the in the aftermath of Israel's precipitous uh, unilateral withdrawal from Lebanon. Um, and uh, unlike uh, politicians of... Uh, Netanyahu's generation and, and older, um, they're much less beholden to the world powers, much more um, much more secure in their Israeli Jewish identity than uh, many of their predecessors in Israeli politics have been. I'm thinking of rising Likud stars uh, like uh, the newly minted ministers Yariv Levine and Zev Elkin, Sipi Chotobeli, who's a deputy foreign minister, I'm thinking in the Jewish Home Party about Education Minister Naftali Bennett and Justice Minister Ayelet Shaked. And these are all people that are just rising in, in uh, prominence in Israeli politics that are developing their own uh, political camps. Uh, Police Minister uh, Gilad Erdan is also a member of this generation. And I think that you see in them a new breed of Israeli polit uh, politician that is much more uh, focused on Israel, much less focused on what uh, the United States says, and uh, uh, feels much less psychologically dependent on uh, outside actors and inside of Israel on the uh, on the sort of uh, basic uh, socialist institutions that formed Israeli society, including the media. So it's a different it's a different political. I, I told you landscape. that uh, just last week or thereabouts, Michael Oren joined us mm -hmm. from the floor of the Knesset. He, the former Israeli ambassador to the United States. Uh, now he's a member of the Knesset, obviously. Uh, is he of any, uh, what's the name of that party? Kulanu. Kulanu. What do um, they represent? Well, I'm not, you know, it, it's not actually quite clear what, what they represent or how long-lived that, that particular political uh, party is going to be. Uh, the head of Michael's party is um, Moshe Kahlon, who is uh, now finance minister. He was a rising star in Likud who felt that he had hit the wall in terms of his ability to uh, move up the ranks in Likud. And so he left politics, formed his own party in order to force Netanyahu to appoint him finance minister. And in this position, he's not uh, really um, bringing, bringing, the, uh, bringing the results that he had promised to voters. So I, I'm not sure how long-lived his party will be. I think it'll probably collapse into Likud in the next election, although I'm not a political commentator. So that's more just sort of my, my instincts. 
Yeah, I, I think if you look at the last 15 years of Israeli party history, there are parties that have disappeared and parties that have been created. They've all been sort of uh, offshoots uh, from Likud, which have become center-right, or offshoots of labor and become sort of center-left. Uh, and some of them really don't have a lot of ideological consistency or enough of a broad-based platform to last beyond essentially the appeal of a Is it, is it the case that the conservative viewpoint, center-right, now uh, predominates in Israel and has for some time? Yeah, I think that's that's quite true. Uh, and in fact, in the last election, though, the Netanyahu's governing majority is 61. Parties that you would identify as center or center-right were, mm -hmm. I think, 67 or 68. Mm -hmm, exactly. You know, I think that the truth is that Israelis have always been center-right. It's just that parties that are now identified on the left used to be on the right. The Labor Party used to be a very hawkish uh, party from a national security perspective. Their 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 economic perspective was, was very socialist. Israel used to be a socialist state. Now it's a much more capitalist state, although we still have socialist uh, aspects, unfortunately, uh, that are restraining economic growth. But I think that, um, you know, those those old those old notions are are leaving. And right now, um, it, it's much more clear that Israel remains a center right party, the left really has nothing to offer. And so they run around, they do campaigns for uh, social justice to try to expand the welfare state uh, around elections, and then they tend to vote more or less uh, for free market reforms. <laughs> and they're, the pushing, they're pushing gay marriage, aren't they? Yeah, they pushed gay marriage. Look, they're funded by American Jews. And so, you know, in, in things like the New Israel Project, and there are a lot of NGOs uh, in Israel with an enormous amount of money that they get from liberal American Jews, and they push their agenda. There is there a constituency beyond the you know, 20% of the left-wing elite that will vote against the government no matter what? No. Hmm. Uh, we've got some email I want to begin reading to you, but let me once again invite uh, contributions from the listeners. For email, milt, M-I-L-T, at 1590wcgo.com. Milt at 1590wcgo.com. And phone calls, uh, we give those some priority when they arrive. 847-475-1590. 847-475-1590. Um, here is the first email. Why has the administration been so confrontational with Israel? Surely our closest ally in the Middle East and so welcoming to a nation that openly calls for our death. I find it confounding. Does it confound you? Uh, well, it's not that surprising, again, given who the President of the United States is and what his background is. Um, and so you still said, want to hang the hang it on the importance of personality in history? No, no, it's it's personality plus ideology. Um, this is again, Well, personality an, often leads to ideology or matches it. Yeah, but, but I mean, this is an individual who wasn't hiding so much what he believed in. He said he wanted to negotiate with our enemies, uh, that he would talk to Iran, he would sit down in with his Iran, campaign, he did. And he, sure. and he pursued that uh, from the from the start. Um, you know, Hillary Clinton was saying, who would you want to be there for the 3 a.m. call? Um, and the problem is that the administration doesn't see the stuff that would make Hillary Clinton concerned enough to get a 3 a.m. call as threats. These are issues that essentially he has guided forward. He, he doesn't see essentially the reality of what I'll call the conventional or historical Democratic-Republican coalitions with regard to Israel. Uh, and the Middle East. This is a president who I think has, at, by design, 
attempted to make the Israel issue the same as all other issues in the United States. Because you have essentially, you've had a history of bipartisanship, whereas on all other issues, you now have this divide. So this president has essentially pushed the Israel issue so that that also now becomes Democrats are predictable here, Republicans are predictable on the other side. And that's where he wants things to go, because he sees the emerging Democratic majority essentially because of demographics, because of immigration, uh, becoming eventually the dominant political theme in the United States. And he wants the Israel issue decided the way he thinks the left thinks. Is it at all conceivable, this is an outrageous question, or it's based upon an outrageous proposition, most people would find it outrageous, that there is a a latent reserve of anti-Semitism or anti-Semitoid kind of sentiment in this country, which indeed is a resource for uh, the current administration. Look, I mean, apparently they think there is, because if if they didn't believe that there was a reservoir of Jew hatred in this country, then Kerry would not be resonating these anti-Semitic tropes. He would not be saying that Israel would be to blame for votes taken by elected uh, by elected leaders of this country, elected not by the Israeli people, but by the American people. He would not be saying that American Jews are somehow or another treacherous if they oppose an administration's extremely controversial radical policy of enabling America's enemy to acquire nuclear weapons and threaten its very existence, forgetting about Israel. So, I mean, these are classical anti-Semitic tropes. And by the way, they use others as well, like uh, fat cat Wall Street bankers, which immediately calls to mind uh, anti, anti-Jewish caricatures of the 1920s and 1930s. And these are, these are images that stand the test of time that are there. And so the question is not even so much, is there anti-Semitism, but why is it that this administration is, is very consciously using, adopting rhetoric about Jews and about Israel that, that immediately latches onto and ignites these kinds of anti-Semitic images and sentiments that are not rational, that are based on, an, uh, on a rejection of rationality and an embrace of a worldview that hates Jews because uh, of uh, perceived ills in the Jewish character. Yeah, historically, uh, mainstream Jewish organizations in the United States have always viewed the threat to Jews as coming primarily from the right. Mm -hmm. And in Europe, there probably are threats both from the right and the left. In the United States right now, the threat from northern Idaho is, I think, insubstantial. Uh, But the threat on the left, essentially, where the American left is becoming Europeanized and starts with the rejection of Israel and then spreads to include anti-Semitic tendencies, I think, is real. Yeah. I mean, just think about the Metropolitan Opera in New York, right? The most prestigious opera house in the United States. Last year, apropos of absolutely nothing, they staged an anti-Semitic operatic pogrom, you know, in the death of Klinghoffer, which glorifies the murder of a wheelchair-bound American Jew, Leon Klinghoffer, who was thrown overboard a cruise ship, the Achille Lauro, in 1985, by Palestinian terrorists because he was Jewish. And they lionized his murderers at the Metropolitan Museum, I mean, at the Metropolitan Opera House in New York. Um, This is something that 
never would have happened, you know, when I was growing up in the United States in the 1980s. And yet now everybody is aghast uh, in the establishment that anybody would dare to question the artistic authenticity of this opera whose only purpose in existing is to demonize Jews and support their murder by Palestinian terrorists. Which leads me to ask, I might always do it in <coughs> my native New York accent, <coughs> or at least with native New York vocabulary, vocabulary, what the hell is wrong with our brothers and sisters? Yeah, I, Why I, is there so much <coughs> continuing Jewish support for the undertakings of the Democratic Party, no matter how extreme, no matter how illogical, no matter even how anti-Semitoid. I said that because it's disguised. It isn't full outright. It isn't uh, der Stürmer, but uh, it is maybe, uh, I don't know, Le Matin. Yeah, I, I also from New York, so I got a little bit of connection here. But the, I, I think part of what's going on is that uh, American Jews are uncomfortable with social policies of the conservative right, uh, particularly when it comes to issues like abortion, gay marriage, they do not feel like they belong with that group. And that includes the fact that the uh, social conservatives are religiously affiliated. They are serious about their religion. They go to church every Sunday. American Jews will don't attend. That We are the least attending of all any major identifiable no. religion in the United States. So you have a secular worldview, socially liberal, and I think the new factor is fear. The fear that Jews had in 1910, 1920, 1930 about acceptance is now a fear that the country is essentially becoming less essentially sympathetic. So as a result, you have to play ball with the established powers. Uh, we pause right now for the usual reasons, <clears throat> then on to a few phone calls and more email. For phones, once again, 847-475-1590. For email, milt at uh, uh, 1590wcgo.com. Right back after this. And directly back to Carolyn Glick and Richard Baer and on to the phones. Sam, you have joined us. Good afternoon. Yeah. How are you today? Good. Go ahead, uh, please. I hope I, I, hope I hope heard you correctly. Uh, that you were saying the Democratic Party is anti-Semitic. Uh, I was suggesting, and I think Richard Baer at least was agreeing with me, that um, the um, current policies draw upon a kind of latent and hidden reserve of uh, anti-Jewish feeling that has been operative in this country, uh, if if not at, at the time of the revolution, shortly thereafter. Yeah, my my, com my, my, my comment, and I'll, I'll be quick, is that there is clear hostility, very open to Israel, uh, on the left in the United States, and the left basically supports the Democratic Party lock, stock, and barrel. Not all Democrats are on the left, but that is an increasing percentage who are on the left, and that you see that in the media, you see that in their identification, essentially with uh, those who are hostile to Israel in Europe and in, and in the United Nations. And th there's this attempt to identify, I'm not anti-Semitic, I'm just anti-Israel. But when you cheat, treat Israel differently than any other country in the world and more harshly, there's something more going on. Uh, well, I disagree with that. First of all, um, I think there's a difference between being anti-Semitic and being anti-Israel government. And the reason I, I say that is if you take a look at the Democratic Party, you have many, many Jews elected to office and sitting in Congress. And if I'm not mistaken, you have maybe one or two Jews elected by Republicans. 
I believe that the anti-Semitic people are in the Republican Party and, and not in the Democratic Party. I think the Democratic Party is saying they don't like what the Israeli government is doing. And I also believe that the reason Obama is following the path he's following is because he believes for a lasting peace in there, you have to sit down and make a peace deal. And it's obvious Netanyahu has no intention, has never had an intention, to sit down and make a peace deal. Because he said it right before the last election. I imagine Carolyn Glick would like to make a response. Well, I think that I think that there's one thing that has to be made clear. Israel is a democracy. And so when you oppose the government of Israel, you're opposing the Israeli people because the governments of Israel represent the people who 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 voted for them. Now, you can say that you're not anti-Israel, you're just against the anti you're just against the government of Israel, but then you have to recognize that what you're saying is that you support Israel if it's led by a minority, what you're saying is that you oppose Israeli <laughs> democracy, and that to me is a, is is an anti is an anti-Israel position, uh, uh, it, it just by its very nature. Because if you're you're rejecting re- repeatedly, yes, this is the third time consecutively that Netanyahu has been mm-hmm. elected prime minister, and he was also elected prime minister a first time in the 1990s. If you're saying that you support Israel, but you reject the leadership of a prime minister who has been reelected now three times in a row, then that's very disrespectful of of the Israeli public, and you know, and and um, and and moreover, this whole thing you think that there should be peace. Well, Obama said that, and Netanyahu uh, came up, anted up, had peace, had tried to have uh, negotiations with the Palestinians. They refused to meet with him. So who's at fault? I mean, I think that the, the the desire to cast blame on the absence of for the absence of peace on an Israeli prime minister who has repeatedly shown his willingness to make concessions and has in fact made concessions in order to convince the Palestinians to negotiate with him to blame him for the absence of peace instead of to the Palestinians who have refused to negotiate um, is is a very hostile. Act and I think that you may say you're pro-Israel, but in fact you reject the will of the Israeli people as it's brought to the fore in consecutive elections, and you blame Israel for actions that are taken on the side of the Palestinians, and say that Israel is to blame for the absence of peace. Those are policies that are deeply hostile to Israel itself, not to this leader or to that leader, but to Israel as a whole. Sir, I'll give you a half minute if you want okay. to respond. I just want to know. I want to know what the concessions you made. We, Israel, agreed to let murderers out of prison. Wait, wait, wait. Don't shout. Don't shout. Let me give She wants to talk over me. Just like Rush Limbaugh. Just like, uh, what's his name, uh, O'Reilly. If you start that kind of fighting, sir, I'm going to bid you a cordial good afternoon, but we don't have time for it. But Israel Uh, actually made concessions. We we let terrorists murderers out of prison, 78 of them, at the demand of the American government, why they were demanding that we let pri- we let murderers out of prison is unclear. And we denied Israeli Jews their property rights for 10 months, suspended their rights, their basic civil rights, in order to try to appease these Palestinians who said the Jews should be denied their property rights. And if they're not, then we're not going to come to the tailor. So they were denied their property rights. For 10 months, for no reason other than an attempt to appease the Palestinians, terrorist murderers were let out of prison for the same reason, and the Palestinians still refused to negotiate with Israel. But at least all the people who claim that they're 
good pro-Israel Americans are blaming Israel for the absence of peace. Um, email. <clears throat> Pardon uh, the voice. It's getting a little raspy. When you read stories of Westerners going to fight in the Middle East, not the crazies joining ISIS, but Americans and others <clears throat> going to help the Assyrians, the Syrians, the Yazidis, etc., it's always Christians. As long as there are evangelical Christians, then Israel will have plenty of allies. Uh, they tend to own guns, too. So even if our own government is turning its back on Israel, between the IDF and gun-toting Israel lovers, they'll be just fine, says Don, um, uh, emailing from Atlanta. Well, uh, what I'd say is uh, the evangelical community has been a strong supporter of Israel for any number of reasons, including the fact that they value them as a Western democracy, a country that they recognize, whose values are similar to those of the United States. Uh, there are some who believe that this is strictly related to uh, a Christian doctrine, and I think that is a, a part of the story, but it's certainly not all of the story. But uh, American Jews and Israelis, I think, uh, who are supportive of Israel very much appreciate that support. Uh, and, and welcome it. And it also explains in part why, again, there is this growing discord between secular American Jews and those who are supportive of Israel, who are more conservative and more religiously affiliated. Um, yet another email along similar lines. <clears throat> um, it's sad uh, what this administration is doing to Israel. I'm angry that the majority of Jewish voters are still liberal. I just heard you make excuses and all but apologize for Senator Schumer voting against Israel. A few blocks from you, Representative Jan Schakowsky openly campaigned for an Iran deal. Rahm Emanuel is another who isn't called to task. Um, the American conservative does stand with Israel. Yeah, let, let me start by saying I'm making no apology for Schumer. I'm trying to explain essentially his thought process, and I think if he winds up taking that route, it's disgraceful. Uh, because this is someone who has claimed that he is the protector of Jews in Israel, and if he's unwilling to do that in a most critical moment on this particular piece of legislation and this deal, uh, I think it's shameful. So I am hardly defending him, and I do believe at this point that uh, the, the support for Israel comes much more from Republicans and the conservatives, but it's problematic if it only comes from them. There is no reason why those who understand the history of the Democratic Party, people like Scoop Jackson and, and Lyndon Johnson, are un and even Bill Clinton, uh, who wasn't perfect, but certainly uh, noticeably different than the president we have now. There has been historically bipartisan support, and that now that has changed, and it's changed at the direction of a president who wanted to see it change. No, and it's not just that. I, first of all, I think that it's absolutely true that uh, Republicans today are more supportive of Israel than Democrats are, by and large. Um, but you also have to look at the opinion data. The opinion data shows that a plurality of Democrats remains very supportive of Israel, and there's no reason why you, there's a, a, any perceived uh, contra uh, contradiction between being pro-Israel and being a liberal, because Israel brings to light in the Middle East the only country that actually lives out the very values that liberals fight for in this country. So um, I, you know, the the fact of the matter is that anti-Semitism very often comes from the top and makes its way down, and we're seeing this very clearly, unfortunately, with the Obama administration. 
today. Um, but I don't think that there's any reason why this has to be a longstanding situation. Certainly don't understand why African Americans have any reason to be uh, anti-Israel or to view Israel, the only country that gives equal rights to all of its citizens, regardless of color, creed, or religion, or sexual orientation for that matter, that they have any reason whatsoever to be anything but supportive of Israel. And I'm very hopeful that uh, after the Obama presidency is concluded, that we'll be able to heal the rifts that he has done so much to promote between uh, the Jewish state and the African-American community. But I'm surprised. You are a native Chicagoan. Haven't you learned from the uh, Reverend uh, or Minister Farrakhan that Jews controlled the slave trade and were great slave owners? Right. Well, you know, I grew up in Hyde Park, and and my family still lives there, so that when we come to visit, uh, we stay in Hyde Park. And I graduated from Kenwood Academy on the south side of Chicago, and um, uh, my homeroom teacher was suggesting that we bring Farrakhan in to be the uh, commencement speaker when we graduated. Mm -hmm. And I tried to organize a boycott of all of the uh, top students in my class that we wouldn't come to graduation if he appeared. But so yeah, this is something that I've I've I'm definitely familiar with. But again, I don't think that the the majority of uh, of African Americans are 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 followers of Farrakhan. I think that they're that they're Christians, and they're conservative. And I again, I I really don't see any reason why this has to be a longstanding uh, rift between. Uh, Israel and the Democratic Party. I think it's been instigated from the top, and if you get a better leadership in the Democratic Party, if it's possible uh, at this point, um, then uh, you will see a a different position from the Democrats on the Jews and on Israel. Who would be better for Israel, and thus for all the positive values that Israel does represent? A president, uh, a second President Clinton, or... uh, or should we make the Republican president? Uh, I, I will prefer a Republican president because— uh, Which one? Um, uh, there are three or four that I would find uh, acceptable. Uh, so Marco Rubio, uh, Bush, Scott Walker, well, John right. Kasich, any of them. President Bush or President Cruz. or President Clinton, uh, which one would you prefer from the point of view of Israel's requirements? I've got 15 seconds. Yeah, I'll, I'll take any of the Republicans uh, by contrast. Um, I think I probably would, too, except maybe Rand Paul. Yeah. And with that, we will close down for the day. Thanks to all for listening. We'll be back tomorrow with a recorded program that is one that people enjoyed a great deal and have told us about, the one in which we explained what modern philosophy is really all about. That's tomorrow, right after the news.